Welcome to the February edition of the Cinetopia podcast. Um, I'm Amanda Rogers, co-founder of Cinetopia, uh, and I'm here with uh, Jim, co-producer of the show. Jim, how are you? I'm good, Amanda. Thank you. Great. And uh, Steph, as well, our, one of our regulars. Steph, welcome back and uh, looking forward to chatting with you. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Amanda. Yourself? Not too bad. I'm um, in the midst of enjoying the snow and also uh, working very hard on an edit. So it's good weather for staying indoors and 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 staying focused. Um, anyway, on this uh, this this uh, this podcast today, we're going to uh, review four films. Um, Netflix version of a lockdown film, Malcolm and Marie, which is directed by Sam Levinson. Also, The Mauritanian, which is directed by Scottish, uh, well, Scottish director Kevin McDonald. It will actually be at Glasgow Film Festival uh, online um, and then for wider release um, pretty soon. And then also we're going to be uh, reviewing Brian Fogel's new documentary, The Dissident, which uh, premiered at Sundance last year, but will also be at the Glasgow Film Festival. Um, and finally, we're, um, we're reviewing the new documentary by Gianfranco Rossi, A Notturno, uh, premiered originally at Venice Film Festival. It's at London Film Festival, but it will be out on wider release. Um, during the month. Um, so Jim also interviewed Alex Camilleri, uh, the director of Lutsu, which premiered at Sundance, and Jim was part of the Sundance, um, uh, well, was, was part of the press screenings of that, so I'd like, we're going to hear a little bit about that as well. And Betty, um, our regular contributor and sometimes podcast um, contributor as well, uh, was also at um, Rotterdam online. So she's going to give us a little segment about that experience. Um, And that's all for uh, February, uh, but uh, it's proving to be quite exciting. Uh, so just a little bit of news from uh, Cinetopia. Uh, we're really excited to announce that we have uh, been chosen to be part of the Creative Informatics uh, Resident Entrepreneur Program. So that allows us to kind of start what we're trying to do with this uh, virtual community hub. I think a few months ago you might have seen that we were putting out a survey for filmmakers and fil- people within the film industry to let us know what kind of thing they'd like to see in a hub. So I always welcome your um, your recommendations or just any interest in what we're doing in the behind the scenes on that. We'll announce more stuff as the months go by and very much looking forward to sharing uh, when we can start the Cinescapes project that we talked a lot about as well. But, um, you know, the lockdown is continuing to happen. So we're just optimistic, um, but working behind the scenes on that. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, Jim, you were part of the Sundance um, Press. Um, so you got to attend the festival in a remote fashion. Do you have any um, feedback on that experience? I think some people, when they react to Sundance films, or maybe a bit over the top, and I've blamed that on the Thin Mountaineer in Utah before, but I don't think that can be blamed this time. Um, it was good, though. It was good. I So I did um, I did Sundance last year, um, okay. but I did it, I did it like, I, I was ahead of my time, you see, right? I did it remotely there. Basically, I used the, I used the press accreditation to chase up screeners, and I... Um, Looked, at it. I managed to see a bunch of films that way. This time it was it was all online, right? So the press and the public, same sort of idea. It was just the the, the press got it like basically like a day before, essentially, as a premiere. And it, overall, it was pretty good. Um, there were some 
pretty not good films in there to be honest um but uh there were some that were excellent there was judas and the black messiah uh was a very good one which is gonna come out quite soon i think i think it's one of these ones that's gonna end up on hbo max that we spoke about in the show before yeah uh, that was really good uh alex camilleri's lutsu the the director we're talking to in the interview later in the show i think that was probably my favorite of the festival uh about maltese fisherman uh, i definitely keep an eye out for that it's really good um and there were a bunch I saw that were that were good. There were some that weren't so much. I'm not I'm not going to talk about them here because you know there's, I don't see the point in kicking them further. When in some cases I need to write a review where I'm not going to be too not going to be praising them too much. Um, but it was a good experience, and I quite liked the idea. I'm getting used to the idea of virtual film festivals. Um, just kind of like you know, particularly when there's a lot of people that just buzz of activity online when somebody you know, a whole bunch of people have seen a film. It's it, it's not the same, um, but I'll take it for now, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things with Sundance particularly is that they did, were able to open it up. It's always, I mean, it isn't Sundance very much about the activation and being seen within the industry, and I mean, that's primary. Maybe the films aren't quite as good as other film festivals or whatnot, but it's kind of about that meeting place. But at least with this, um, you're not, of course, you know, you're not waiting in line in the freezing cold, and you know, you know, and it's not, it's not about that cachet or something like that. So hopefully, that will continue to exist with other film festivals. I mean, I think the yeah. same case was with Rotterdam as well. Like, it much be nicer to have some in-person screenings and stuff. But we'll hear what Betty's take on that is um, later in the show. far the most excruciating, difficult, stubbornly obnoxious woman I've ever met in my entire life. I fucking love you. Oh, he's so sensitive. He's romantic. Betty's sweet, right? Well, I mean, yeah. When he's not being an emotional fucking terrorist. Oh. <laughs> I love the way you see the world, Marie. mystery the unknown it's what supports the tension of a relationship you're angry no the what if factor marie marie what if there's someone who loved them better so the first film that we're going to review today is malcolm and marie directed by sam levinson it's currently on netflix um, so you can check it out there. Uh, so, Steph, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film? Okay, so it's um, the latest uh, release from Sam Levinson, who I think a lot of people will know um, from his hit series Euphoria, which is, I think, going into its second season. Um, he's had a few credits throughout the years. If um, anyone's seen any of his early work, he sort of jumps in between genres and kind of explores different terrain through all his filmmaking and he goes into this one in a way kind of like a kitchen sink drama on screen so we have um john david washington that was um kind of made a name for himself primarily this year through um nolan's tenant and we have um Zadea coming um back again she worked she worked with levinson as well in euphoria as one of the uh, one of the stars of that show and she's also um quite big um i think within quite a lot of the new spider-man releases so this is um so it's it's pretty much 
uh, it's pretty much the tellings of a, an, an event unfolding within one kind of space, one house, over the course of an evening. And it starts when um, John David Washington's character, Malcolm, is coming back from a celebratory kind of premiere of his new film, which, you know, up until he's he's returned home has been very highly praised from the critics that were also attending the premiere. So it kind of fluctuates in between how how Malcolm himself kind of perceives and has experienced the evening to how his partner, um, Marie, has kind of um, felt quite distanced from it. And, it. and it really unravels into how a lot of kind of kitchen sink dramas on film unravel. It, it goes into different avenues of um, power dynamics and it addresses kind of a, a select few major conflicts which kind of collide within um, the two characters. So it's pretty much... Um, an exploration of, of relationships and that and not to not to give too much away but it, it's very much one where you kind of it's kind of you know you're it's like a game of Wimbledon with this thing you're going back and forward between um the, these two characters kind of feelings towards the relationship and their um their life as such just now within within Malcolm's career and outside of it and how that's kind of affected them both yeah, and I mean, I think it's good to note that um, largely the film was obviously sh- obviously shot this year, right during lockdown in one setting. Um, so it's it's very much one one location, uh, two people, um, and uh, you know, and, and and an attempt to do something high production value, um, you know, with a well known director. Um, so what did you guys think of the film? I'll save my my points uh, till till afterwards. Hmm. <laughs> Let's. I'll start off with the positives first. Um, I think, in terms of the way the film looks, I think they've done an extremely good job. Um, particularly with the, I mean, in, even independent of the restrictions, it was it, it was made under the need to kind of like have a very very scaled back uh, crew and all the rest of it. I I think they've done a pretty good job. I think it was it was shot on thirty five millimeter in black and white and i think the decision to do that pays off i think it's a very good looking film um i've got a lot of time for i've got a lot of time for the performances in the sense of what they make of what they've been given and we're going to come back to that in a minute um i think it's I know I've not seen Euphoria. Is the is the, the which like Zendaya's won? I think it was an Emmy. She won an award for that. She won for that. Um, so my experience of her on film is pretty limited. So it's a far more interesting performance than I've seen for her from her in previous films, which in all honesty basically extends to um, the Marvel Spider Man ones. Um, John David Washington, I think, when he's got a bit more to chew over he's a very engaging presence right because i was a big fan of him in black clansman in tenet i thought he may as well have been a cardboard cutout but i think that's more to do with that film than his performance so i think they've got a bit more he's got a bit more to work with here and they they have an opportunity to um you know kind of actually try and put their stamp on it the problem is the script and i think what sam levinson wants to say with the film it's just not I've got to be honest, I don't think it's terribly interesting. That's really what what, what it comes down to. Um, it's one of these films, and maybe I've just got a low tolerance for this sort of thing. It's 
it's one of these films where the two people talk to each other in the way that, in my experience, no two real people ever talk to each other. Um, now, to an extent, is that what he's going for? Are they kind of like two sides of his thoughts? You know, the sort of like the arrogant, ambitious side and the, you know, slightly more realistic, questioning, insecure side and reality, they reflect each other. But... I mean, sure, I think there's something like that going on, but that doesn't make it any less tiresome to watch. Um, it's very cyclical, the way this goes. They are passive-aggressive to one another, then they blow up at one another, then they're nice to one another, then they start becoming passive-aggressive again, rinse and repeat for an hour and 40 minutes. Um, so I think there's there's plenty there's plenty to like about the film in terms of how it looks, and I think he he does an extremely good job of mixing up the space and the way he moves the camera around the space. I think that I think there's plenty of good stuff going on. I just think it can't really disguise what is a fundamentally pretty repetitive and uninteresting script. To be honest, uh, would be my view on it. Um, now, also, there's nuance there, and we'll maybe get into that. But overall, that's kind of like the big win and the big shortcoming of the film for me. Um, yeah, I would I would agree with with that completely. I think going back to you know from like Sam Levinson's career and, th- and things, I am I'm a big fan of him as a director, especially you know his early work. Um, I think more the way that he kind of puts his own stamp on quite. Um, well-known genres and, and makes them almost his own and he he is I think as Jim was saying the performances really are the thing that kind of carries this film along because I think that with everything that he does he, he puts a lot um, he gives um, his actors a lot to do I think that that's centrally when he when he makes a lot of productions he, he puts um, the actors kind of in the front of the vehicle when he's making his art and I and I think it pays off because he he um has a lot of room to nuance and write around these sometimes overplayed genres and make them make them transform in a way that a little bit different he kind of it's almost like he's not afraid to have this shared authorship with the crew and cast of his films and I think that really shows in in his style but like Jim was saying with this one and I have quite a lot of time for kind of repetitiveness in film if it has a purpose the issue I think, like Jim was saying, is is it is in the writing itself. It's in the script. It, I think when you need when you are doing something, especially that are, involves two characters, you know you need to put there needs to be quite a lot of organic kind of conversation with like within scripts like that. Because I think that if you're trying to if you're trying to do a wider talk about, especially in this one about um people in the art world and the the um, filmmakers versus the critics and the um everything like that I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with talking about that as a subject because I think it is something that um is is a good thing to bring up especially um in the way the art's kind of taken in now especially in lockdown the way that we kind of consume by the second but there needs to be there needs to be something more in a in a story between two characters than just a critique on mass culture it doesn't um it doesn't hold together a script that's going to keep you really quite as focused as you would be i i think that the the, the thing is i think that the cause of performances are so good it could have easily gravitated to much more 
kind of colloquial and normal language between these two people that do very much feel alienated by each other and it just never it just never really I just never really grasps that um, in the centre of it all so I think I'm pretty much just kind of re-saying what, what Jim said in his in his critique but I think yeah the main issue with it is is in the language I think if the screenplay itself was um, a little bit more coherent in the messages and, and the relationship that it wanted, it wanted to um, build and analyse I think that it would have actually been a much more enjoyable experience and one that people could have connected to a lot more especially um, in times of isolation, there's a lot of those sort of themes swirling around in it, um, even in the setting. Um, but yeah, if you want for the aesthetic, it, it looks it looks amazing. I think um, the whole everything that's been chosen about how where it was set, how it's been filmed, has been very carefully thought out, um, and it has created kind of the undertones and the, the atmosphere that I, I think that it did want to achieve. So I think that it's it's a bit of, um it's one of those things where it's, it's got the makings of everything to be to be really good but there's just one one screw that wasn't really you know wasn't locked in tight enough to to make it run as smoothly as it could. See, I um I completely thought that uh I I guess I mean I guess we're all saying it's not good but I have to say I really strongly like responded negatively to this film so I don't see these positives I do see the fact that it was shot in film and in the sense that it's a film you know and it's very like it's about film and it's shot in a film it's like oh great you know but I you know, I go back to a lot of conversations that Jim has about films made of films and, you know, also like pretentious filmmakers talking about it, like thinking about the souvenir as one example. And I this could not be more annoying of a bunch of filmmakers talking about films like, you know, like art house films of in film history that it just even it, I did know those references and whatnot, but I just found that conversation to be like unrealistic and unrelatable oh, completely. as a filmmaker completely. myself um and i didn't know enough i guess because i just watched it knowing nothing and i think that was the best way and i was like this doesn't feel like two people actually having a normal conversation like you're saying but uh, but but it also felt like a play that was just poorly written and yes, the performers were very attractive and they were very good, but they weren't really committed to the to the actual material because the material was like yeah. unrelatable. And if and I know that I think we briefly mentioned that you you know it frustrated you that film critics are getting mad about the criticism, but I wouldn't ever imagine you know someone to be like that you know in response to like in, in response to an evening like that. It just it just didn't it didn't feel like I like I'm the one who supported you know Marriage Story I believe I'm not sure how many people liked Marriage Story in this but it goes back to me saying to Netflix um you know I really love their documentary strands and a lot of a lot of stuff they're doing even with television and stuff like that but the feature films that this reminded me a lot of that Charlie Kaufman film that we had like I'm, I'm exactly um, I'm exactly the same yeah I'm thinking of ending things where it's like who in the production of films is saying i'm going to give really famous directors like the opportunity 
to just make whatever they want. And we're not going to look back at this and say, this needs to be edited. This needs to be thought over a bit. And it's just, it's, it's, it's frustrating me now because this is maybe like the fourth Netflix film that I'm like, you know, good famous director, terrible film. Something that's interesting on that note, were you saying you're frustrated about it? I, I was looking at the... the some information about the production and it was I, it didn't start as a netflix thing i think sam levinson they just made it and then netflix bought it after they outbid quite a lot of other suits they paid quite wow. a lot of money for this it was like 30 million bucks or something like that i i mean and i i don't know if it comes down to like and i didn't i've never seen sam levinson's other work so i have no way to relate to that i just from that first experience i found I wouldn't want to see any of his other work. Um, it really did annoy me. And it, as you said, it was boring. And I, ha- again, I have a lot of attention and time for films that fi- I would even watch the breakup again, you know? So like, I don't mind people breaking up on camera, but uh, not, not with like, like just diatribes. It's like a tweet rant, like, or something to me. So it just, it felt, it felt like what people were doing on Twitter during lockdown you know like i don't know <laughs> i'm glad you mentioned i'm thinking of ending things right because now as, as you know from when we did the review show that i i didn't like that at all a lot of people did right but what i will say is there was at least some attempt to abstract that away from um charlie kaufman's head right that, that, that's what i will say this is basically just it feels a little bit like Sam Levinson just speaking through the characters, and it's films like yeah. that where I I have a limited amount of interest in it. What I, what I will say is, like I I think there there are some there are some ideas kicking around in these diatribes that I think are worth discussing or are worth trying to address in the form of uh, a film of some sort. Right, the idea of. Um, you know, the interpretation of art versus what the maker's intention was, right? Because something that's notable about that, and as I say, I, I think there's a lot of film critics who've got a little bit too sensitive about the anti-critic rants in here, but one thing that is interesting about them is the fact that the Malcolm character, he has a go at some critics who disliked his, I think it's in, I think his last fictional film, I can't, can't remember, but he also has a go at critics who are actually praising the current one, but they're doing it in a way that he thinks is stupid because they don't know how to talk about a film by a black filmmaker. Now, without getting into the the, the weirdness of this being expressed through a character written by Sam Levinson, who is a white director, I'm going to put that to one side for a minute. But that idea about who gets to interpret art and how could actually be an interesting thing to look at and it could be an interesting thing to look at in like one of these films about films right i just don't think this is that film it's not done but you can't just like you can't just state a few sentences about it and then pretend that you're you're getting into the weeds of it like you're actually looking at it that you that's not you're just stating the problem and that's a problem which i think anybody who is going anybody who would engage with that in the script is already aware of that problem right so you don't you don't gain any insight you don't say anything by just restating the problem right because if somebody isn't aware of it you're just saying it exists big whoop if somebody does know it exists you're not saying anything about it again big whoop so it's more it just feels like a bunch of things 
and actually, the you know something, you did, Amanda, your Twitter analogy is actually isn't too bad. It feels like the sort of thing that a director would post as like a thread on Twitter in a slight, you know, in slight annoyance or something. It, it's it, not a script. <laughs> it's honestly something I probably read in a review once I finally watched it and then saw like, <laughs> like what, what the heck am I watching and um, why am I just dis- dis- disliking it so much? Because yeah, it's pretty. You know, and the set design is, it's its all my kinds of type. And I don't, I love a chat about film criticism. And I think maybe it's just as I'm, you know, watching more films, um, the con- these conversation films about like highbrow, like nonfiction comes to mind that, you know, French film about like the loss of literary, you know, like the book industry or something. Um, it's just, if it doesn't work, and it, you know, it doesn't, I mean, I hate that word just authentic, oh, it's not authentic, you know, but it really just felt like, like I, I like I was watching these people, they were, they were reading something that wasn't, wasn't there, them. That's how it felt to me. So it just wasn't enjoyable to me. To go back to, I think, like the, the problem of authenticity and what, what Jim is saying about, you know, the whole um, kind of. Um, Malcolm's character um, being quite angry at reviews that are misinterpreting his work and saying that it's political with due to the fact that he's a black man and and, and the problem with you know Sam Levinson being a white man that, that's writing the script and I think that it, it's so weird that, that, that this film's kind of came just now because we have this whole discourse going on just now especially about you know if you're ha- if you're writing about people of color or you're writing about lgbtq characters you you can't really have um you can't really have a very fixed authorship you have to have people if you if you are outside of the those kind of communities you have to have people within them to kind of guide your writing and i i, I think it's that thing kind of it's funny because the film itself is it talks a lot about authorship and you know who made the biggest like who has led this train of thought thought in someone's head that's made of art and what does that mean do you do you completely own it is it is it is it really your credit and it's one of those things where I think that perhaps if I think if Sam Levinson had had a few more people involved in the writing of the script that because it it almost feels like he's digested things that are happening in our political climate. But he's taken f- fragments of all of it and kind of just throwing lots of jargon into a void and hoping that something sticks in the center. There's no real linear argument to anything. It's it's just we'll take um, bits and pieces of the discourse that everyone else has been talking about just now within the art world, and that will make a concrete point. And well, it it doesn't really at all. I a hundred percent agree with you on that because I think that the authorship issue does matter and it doesn't but it also is if it was even well done and or you know like it was a continued within the and it was interesting I I would even you know like you know make more liberties for it but I just didn't I you know like I said the only idea I can say is a Twitter is disorganized like a bunch of information like he had a lot of bourbon one night like during lockdown or something and just started writing the script and then nobody edited it and you know that's kind of Netflix's like fault there like nobody on the top of like where I'm starting to think a streaming uh, you know a streaming company shouldn't be like a film production company if they're not going to put executives in there to say you know what we might need to tweak this a bit we know you're a famous person but 
it might not resonate. Yeah, because don't get me wrong, there are there are fra- in, in that script, right? Despite the, despite the right old kicking I've given it during this this discussion, right? There are fragments of interesting ideas in there, right? And the, the one which it picks up and then it drops like almost it well it brings it up late and then drops it almost as quickly is you become aware of the fact that maybe part of the reason that Marie is so annoyed that she's not been thanked as the, the the inciting incident is because basically Malcolm seems to have mined her experiences um, in order to create the narrative of this fictional film, which, of course, we never see, right? But there's the, the feeling that her experiences have been exploited and, you know... There's actually again. There's an interesting idea there. Like you know, what whose whose experiences can you adapt to create art? Can they be your own? Can you do other people? Other like there's again. There's an interesting idea there in particular in the dynamic of this relationship between two people. But again, it skims the surface of it. It doesn't go anywhere with it. It uses a vehicle for her to get annoyed after being passive aggressive for a bit. Then they write, shout at each other, and then they, you know, and again, it just become it. It basically becomes the reset button for this cycle in the film. It, it has no interest in going any deeper. So between that and interpretation again there are interesting ideas kicking around it's just it doesn't do anything interesting with them and that's exactly the same problem i think that the the charlie kaufman film had also a netflix one as you've uh pointed out um so it's more a case of it, it just leaves you feeling very unfulfilled like it, it's kind of it's very it's very intellectually um malnourished really it's maybe the way i'd put it it doesn't really go particularly deep in a satisfying way on any of these ideas and ultimately therefore why should you care about it um sam levinson's first film kind of explores i think this is one of the things that he's quite drawn to in the stories that he tells us he likes to explore the kind of the dark roots of very close relationships and his his first film um another happy day it had mixed reviews i personally really liked it i think it was I think the reason that that one perhaps worked for me when this one didn't was because it, I think when you're exploring these really in-depth psychological boundaries between characters, I think that the way to the way to avoid too much um, criticism and what what you're saying is not not to try and draw such fixed conclusions about what what you what you're doing. Or I mean, and I think that I think that in Malcolm Marie he was kind of trying to do that. But from throwing a bunch of ideas into kind of like a a whirlpool and um seeing what um seeing what kind of draws focus, but I think that if you're going to do that, you have to you kind of have to have a very established set of things that you feel very comfortable speaking about and something that you something that's very universal that you can relate to a lot of people that are going to be watching this film. Because if you're going to do a film about kind of arts versus commercialism, arts and um, the art art through exploitation and um, the, the filmmaker versus the critic, you need to find a lot more human terrain to talk about these issues than just ones that are going to appeal to the art world that are going to be looking at it. it especially if yeah. you're doing a film with two characters that need to guide this all the way through. I think that the actual emotions and the, the actual dynamics in the relationship um, outside of Malcolm's career and um, Zendaya's inspiration for his film a lot of it is just it's not it's not as explored as any of that and they, that 
arguably is, would be the most interesting part. I, I agree. And, but, um, you know, I, I, and I, and I think now it will make me go back and watch Euphoria and look at Sam Levinson stuff. The only thing I knew about Sam Levinson is was, he was the son of Barry Levinson, who's obviously mm. a very, very famous filmmaker. Um, some great films coming from there, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this felt like a cinephile film gone wrong. And, uh, you know, after, like I said, too many nights, like, like in lockdown, but, um, you know, I, I and Jim, I'm never gonna stop loving the Oscars. But if this is nominated for an Oscar and or guess anywhere near winning, <laughs> I will I throw something. Will. I will throw something because um, I'll love to hate it. Uh, but anyway, on that note, it is on Netflix. And if you want to see what we're talking about, please go check it out. If you stray outside the designated areas, you will be removed from the island. It's recommended you wear a hijab when visiting your client. We've had incidents of inmates spitting at female lawyers. You want to represent the head recruiter for 9-11. Mohamedou Old Slahi, the Mauritanian held in Guantanamo. He recruited the guys who flew your friend's plane into the South Tower. He put those men on my husband's plane? I'm going to make him pay. In the event the detainee lunges for you, push back away from the table. We'll get in there as quick as we can. I'm Nancy Hollander. This is my associate. We wish to represent you. We are seeking the death penalty. But if we miss something, this guy goes home. Let's get to it. So the next film we're going to review is The Mauritanian, directed by Kevin McDonald. And Jim and Steph saw this um, in advance of its release. Uh, so, uh, Jim, do you want to tell us a little bit about the film? Yeah. Um, so the film is about a man from Mauritania. <laughs> no surprise there. Um, who was held in Guantanamo. It's based on a real story. And I think in the real case, he was held for... 14 years without charge, as seemed to typically happen with Guantanamo Bay. And the film is based upon a memoir of his from 2015, and Guantanamo Diary, and uh, the author and the subject of this film is Mohamedou Uld Salahi. And basically what it does is it follows his initial arrest, uh, capture by the US authorities, transport to Guantanamo, and the process of the the legal battle for getting him out and his then subsequent trial when it that eventually comes about. And the main players in this are uh, Taha Rahim, who plays Salahi, uh, Jodie Foster plays his lawyer, Nancy Hollander, and then on the prosecution side of things, uh, working for the, uh, the US military looking to imprison um, Salahi, fully and you know convict him of the crimes he is accused of which is essentially recruiting the terrorists who carried out 9-11 we've got uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Lieutenant Couch I think it is um, who be, who is a member of the military but he has a he has law qualifications and thus is basically an army lawyer so it basically follows the the development of the case uh, the evidence or indeed lack thereof uh, against Salahi, his experience in detention and the the legal battle going in parallel to either convict or free him. 
Um, so I, I've seen this along with Steph. Steph, uh, what did you what did you make of the film? I I really like the film as much as you can like a film about these issues and, and this kind of this story. Um, it's one of those films that makes you go down a certain rabbit hole with the with these political um um with these political topics because you know as soon as as soon as after i'd seen it after i'd seen it, it the one thing that really kind of stuck in my mind is, is there's not really been a lot of films about guantanamo bay you know it, not a lot of um ones in the last few years the, the most famous one i think still to this day would be a few good men but that was you know it was pre pre 911 mm-hmm. um and then you you have um in the two in the 2000 uh, 2010s you have um camp the one one of the ones that come to mind is camp x-ray with uh kristen stewart about six seven years ago and then you have um and then you have well most recently in snippet form you have it being talked about a little bit in vice and i i think this is actually the first film that i've seen that actually has the nerve to finally kind of condemn what has what had been happening in America and what is still happening with Guantanamo Bay? I think it was argued. I've seen a few um, reviews after Vice's release that this is you know done a, a similar thing. I I would greatly disagree with that. I don't think that that did anything near to what this film has done. I think this is. I think because it is based on um, Mohamedou Bouselahi's um, experiences um, through his book, through his autobiography. I think that. You learn so much that you wish that you really didn't know, but I, th- I think that it, it's a reminder of all the sort of omission that exists with talking about these things in cinema. You have, um, I remember, kind of when I was falling down this this rabbit hole of the Guantanamo Bay's represent represent representation in cinema. After seeing this, you know, in every other form that has been shown, there's a way to sort of humanize the idea of the military's conduct and the way to kind of explain why this was happening and and make it seem almost that um, the American military in Cuba were the, the victims of this ordeal, which is it's quite laughable, really, in a way, when you look into the... when you Especially when you see films like this and you see kind of behind the shutters of, of what's been going on. But I, And I think that... Yeah, I think that the performances in this film are unbelievable, especially um, Hamadou. I think that he um, does so well to to um, and and I haven't uh, to be honest. I haven't I haven't read um, his autobiography, but it compelled me to order it as soon as possible to get, kind of see where this is going, see what the film has kind of carried on and emphasised from from this story. So I think if, if anything, it keeps you. It's definitely a political. Um, part of cinema that you know you shouldn't miss. It's something that um, that goes in and out in different depths, and it's never been explored before. And it's something that definitely stays with you. Um, so I think, in a sense, with political films, the, the for me the main thing that it wants you to do is it wants you to engage, and with these things. And I think you can't even really call it recent history when it's something that is still very much in existence today. So I think that. It, and the timing of the film as well is very interesting, because we have um, we have you know new um, presidency. We have um, Joe Biden and um, the and um, as the new American president, 
And I think the film's just a constant reminder of the fact that, you know, it was that there was campaigns for its closure during the Obama administration, which, you know, never never came to never I don't even know how many people until they see this film would be aware. Because I don't think that, that was heavily really in the news. I don't remember much about that. Um so it's all almost like this we're being forced to bury something that's very much still still alive today and it's something that um I think that is has been written in this time to sort of finally kind of there's a lot of activism I would say in this film there's a lot of um truth that it wants to explore and it's I I just think that the way it's done it doesn't it doesn't let you kind of hide behind things anymore I think especially because it's the one of those it's, it's the first film to talk about it that's had a mixed range of like directors and um, of um, writers and you know Kevin McDonald's a, is a Scottish director so you I think the fact that it's got this kind of mixed board of people exploring this issue and it's not centered through American filmmakers makes it very much more on the path to condemn the actions of America which I think that it needed to do it's interesting there's a few things this film does which I'm I'm, I'm quite impressed by um, I think what's quite interesting about it is that it's it's one of the only things I can think of that I've watched. Now, it's, you know, and I've not watched everything, so I'm sure somebody would probably comment with, you know, like, what the hell are you talking about, Jim? This film did it, like, last week or something. But it's one of the only films I can remember recently which has depicted torture in quite the way that it does. And it does it in a way which I think gets across... It gets across quite how debilitating and horrific it is without being graphic. Um, now, that's not to say there aren't graphic elements to it, but some of that, frankly, comes from the filmmaking, right? And the way that some of this is depicted and then the even the lens choices between when the Muhammadu character is being tortured and then goes... and then when it, you know, mercifully at some point ceases for a bit... The filmmaking choices, I think, communicate quite, quite well how disorienting that is and why it is pursued, and quite how inhumane it actually is. So, I think that's quite interesting in terms of how it presents perspectives. I think the way it deals with Mohamedou's character is also interesting. Um, he's shown to, because basically he's shown to be, I think, an unreliable narrator. But not in the kind of like typical deceptive sense that you usually have that done in cinema. It's more just, you know, stuff happened a long time ago. You can't remember it very well. Like, that's really all, you know. So I think that the way it does all that is, is quite interesting. I think politically it's actually quite an interesting film as well. In particular, what I'm thinking of is the way it contrasts how little arguably changes across um, different administrations of the US. Um, it very pointedly lingers on a portrait of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney at one point. Later on, those portraits are replaced, but much the same stuff is going on, and the film kind of goes out of its way to actually show that that happening. Um, I think the performances around the performances in the film are really good. I think Tahar Rahim, as with so much stuff he is in, um, and I think my first my first knowledge of him was Jack Odiar's a, a Prophet, um, and I think he's excellent in this film. Um, I, the, everybody around him, I think they do a good job. Um, 
I, I think it's reasonably by the numbers, if I'm being honest. Um, but I think the the topic you're dealing with, this unlawful detention of people at Guantanamo, is where the film gets its punch from. Um, and I think, fortunately, his performance, you know, solidifies that. I think the rest of them um, are, are good performances. You know, we've got good experienced actors here, particularly in Jodie Foster and, and Benedict Cumberbatch, right? So you would expect to get a good performance out of them. Now, having dealt with the serious stuff, I am going to go a lot more flippant for a short period. Can we please talk, can we please, please have people stop having Benedict Cumberbatch try to do an American accent? I, I, I beg, I beg of every filmmaker on the face of the planet, please. And I just about, like in the midst of this really serious film, I just about like did a spit take and laughed when at one point right so i've got this written down here at one point like they describe muhammadu who who has associated with like ted you know and like you can read this book to to figure out to see the full extent of it but he's been in touch at various points with people associated with terrorists and at one point i think he's described as the al-qaeda forest gump he's everywhere you look and i just about did a spit take because quite frankly benedict cumberbatch's southern accent here sounds like Forrest Gump. I, I, it's not. It's not good. I'm sorry. Like, stop getting this man to do American accents. It sounded. It, it didn't do it for me. It just didn't do it for me. So, it, it, it's you know the film is not without its its small minor issues. I think it is a testament, however, to the filmmaking and in particular that central performance of Taha Rahim that such small things like Benedict Cumberbatch's terrible Southern accent. Um, didn't particularly bother me. I think it's it's a very I know it's you know people say this about films all the time. It's a powerful film, but I think it I think it is, and I think it gets across quite how bad this situation is, and quite how ignored it is as well. And I think that's also highlighted in the filmmaking, right? Because the contrast between um, the contrast between the way that the law offices are presented in America, and I think it's, it's somewhere in New Mexico, I think, where Nancy Hollander works, and then these kind of, like, very brightly lit, saturated colours of the coast of Cuba, in the case of Guantanamo Bay, it's even highlighting that contrast. It's, it's a completely different world. People don't pay attention to it. It's in the middle of nowhere to, you know the average um the average american and i think it gets that all across quite well and in quite subtle ways um but yeah just don't have Ben at cumberbatch doing american accent well i think you make a good point there jim <laughs> and we can all agree benedict keep with your 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 native accent so um but do watch the mauritanian it is on glasgow film festival and then after after that it'll be um I think at Glasgow at home, um, Glasgow Film at Home, um, other various sources, you can check it out um, in the UK and in the US. My name is Hatije Genius. I am addressing you as a victim. A title forced on me after the brutal murder of my Jamal. Jamal Khashoggi, prominent Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist, has gone missing after visiting his country's consulate in Istanbul. He was last seen entering Saudi Arabia's consulate seeking paperwork to marry his fiancée. His fiancée saw him go in at 1pm and was still waiting for him at 1am. 
buhar olup uçmadı. Saudi Arabia now suddenly is admitting that Khashoggi did die inside that building. The government treated me as if I shot the king. So the next film we're going to review is also going to be the Glasgow Film Festival. And to note, we are doing a Glasgow Film Festival special as well coming up. So there will be more that we'll be doing, but um, lots of great stuff on offer. Uh, but is The Dissident. Um, so it's Brian Fogel's next documentary. And Jim, tell us a little bit about that film. Yeah, so um, The Dissident in question is Jamal Khashoggi. Um, who was the Saudi Arabian journalist who was murdered at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul at the end of 2018, I think it was. And basically, Brian Fogel, who made Icarus, which I think, it, did it win the, the documentary Oscar? I think it, it did I win think the it, Oscar, it, yeah. It did yeah. win the Oscar, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's him making this. Um, obviously, he'd won that for the documentary about the, the, the Russian state-sponsored uh, doping program for the Olympics. So it, it takes a fairly similar approach here in terms of presentation. It's very kind of intense, musically driven. It, it goes, it, it kind of goes for almost a sort of like thriller, like tone. But it's it's actually dealing with a few strands, right? The the first and most obvious one is the chronology of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. Um, at the consulate in terms of like what led him to go there, um, the discovery of tapes of it, the timeline, and uh, the fallout from it. The other strands it's also dealing with are Mohammed bin Salman, um, so the crown prince, the uh, son of King Salman in Saudi Arabia, his attempts to modernise the country and the methods that he is following to try and do that, in particular the way that they are dealing with outspoken critics of the regime at home and abroad. And part of that is they follow an associate of uh, Jamal Khashoggi's, Omar Abdulaziz, who's in Montreal in Canada, and um, basically also follows his journey from basically a very small voice on Twitter criticising the regime up to... Um, now presenting, I think it's a YouTube show where basically he criticizes the, the, the Saudi regime on a very regular basis. So it's dealing with these various kind of different strands and kind of the, the cyber, cyber war, cyber terrorism capabilities that Saudi Arabia has as well. So it's juggling a lot of things, but it tries to weave them all together. Um, I, for one, found it pretty effective and engaging i do have some issues with it um but as somebody who follow i followed the jamal khashoggi story as it happened um you, you know i remember his disappearance and it then coming out that he had died i remember um the former president's uh pronouncements or lack of them on the matter and all the rest of it so i i i was following it pretty closely when it happened there is something that is particularly galling about seeing it all laid out at once, though. Um, you know, and that chronology and basically trying to capture the the apprehension and confusion around what had happened, and kind of like then kind of grappling with what the full the full horror of what actually went down. You know, you know, chopping the man's body up. I mean, there is something about laying it all out in front of you in the form of this documentary, which makes it 
particularly galling and particularly striking. And I think, uh, you know, we'll get into we'll get into a bit about how how Brian Fogel goes about doing that. But I do think it's done pretty effectively. I, you know, I, I, I saw Icarus, and uh, I think it was because one of actually a, um, a former colleague on this, Annie, had you know been telling me about it, and it wasn't something that maybe I had wanted to see, but then I heard it was so good, I did, because it, the the premise of Icarus when you when it begins, and I know we're not talking about that film, but it, but is you know, bothered me that it felt like another Morgan Spurlock supersize me kind of director trying to prove something. And then what he uncovered was shocking. And and like the character was incredibly interesting. So I didn't have that many expectations about this next film. Like he's going to find another story that I mean, he kind of fell upon that story and, it, and is uncovered in the documentary. And hence, it wins an Oscar. It was really well done. It was on Netflix. It was a big, big thing. Again, talking about Netflix um, in, in the primary force of, um, of documentary films. But this film was also like incredibly captivating. As you mentioned, I mean, I think it was just such a huge thing in the press and the news when the time it came. It happened to come out probably when I was writing my master. So I was less focused on the news as much. But but laying it all out in a film like this um, really pinpoints, uh, you know, how horrible the situation was and um, and it was it was an incredible incredible story about what happened. Um, do I think it's as good and an interesting as like Icarus was like in terms of a film? It's it's a film with a lot of you know pretty well expensive like shots you know like interview shots. It's a, you know but it's it it kept me like we'll be talking about another film that's quite beautiful as well I think later. But it kept me riveted through the whole thing even though I did know enough about the story from the news. So in that case, I, you, you can't not give it credit if, you, if your attention is, is, is there and what you learn and uncover from it, um, you know, looking back at it. So, you know, I, I would say it's, it's, it's well worth watching and it's well worth watching for the importance of, of seeing, you know, uh, the, the importance of this story and what happened and what's continuing to happen. Yeah, I was very excited to see um, this. In it. I was a big fan of Icarus. Um, his uh, documentary that I think is still available on Netflix just now. And I think that Brian Fogel is going to be quite synonymous with a, more and more with the, you know, the whistleblower director. He goes into these crevices to explore these like facets of corruption that are quite... quite there's quite a lot of... Uh, um, there's quite a lot available and there's quite a lot, a lot that's just not and I think that the one criticism that this film might face is that, you know, you're relaying something that was on the news, you know, not that long ago, it was a few years ago now, I think, but um, it was it's modern media that's been, so it's just a new way to kind of consume and, and digest the story. But I, I think that the more, you know, the more that you go through this documentary, the more that you, you realise that it's saying a lot more than just what, what um what was on the surface um news and what was available um on the web i think that it's it goes further than just like, um you, you, it starts off with um the timeline of um jamal khashoggi's disappearance to his um to his murder to um the aftermath into a great detail that i think that has been i'm not going to say that you no know, wasn't necessarily accessible but one that has not been 
very much as advertised. I I think that it's one of those things, the same thing that he did in Icarus. It, it tests the boundaries of, you know, what is, or more like, who is above the law. You know, I think especially in the these this day and age with them, the more that we have kind of seen this tampering with information, especially on the web, it becomes a, a lot more clear that there are, you know, certain sectors of, of um in, in government and in, in um parliament and in monarchy that do kind of hit that hit that tail so we it's something that I think when you and you when you go deeper into it and you kind of and you because I think with them a lot of films that talk about a lot of um a lot of documentaries that talk about um sort of op, um oppression of the people and governments where it's quite um tight lipped and that, that you do have. You you are censored in what you are able to say about your government, and you are censored about what you are able, um, to make criticism of. Um, so I, th- and when you go um deeper into it, you you can see kind of this kind of mirror between what's been happening very recently in the world and what you know what was only happening a couple of years ago, and there's not really been a lot of change at all. You know the um, it, it, I think especially when it plunges deep into the social media aspects of people being able to distort um, the narrative and the things that you're saying and that there's actually a lot of a lot of that is already pre-programmed a lot of that's already predestined to stop these conversations taking place so I think that to I think that you know if you if you're going into watching it thinking oh it's going to be just what I've kind of was keeping up with news about um Jamal Khashoggi um it's going to be about things I already know I I wouldn't I wouldn't say it is I would say that it goes much much deeper into the problems with accessibility the problems of censorship and and the problem and the legal problems within within governments and I think that it's something that's um I think that's something that we did need a, need a documentary on I think it's a case that it brings up at the end, you know, that they didn't want this case to die with the news story. They wanted to keep bringing it. And I think that what while it was quite heavily mediaized at the time, um, it's been something that's also almost been pushed to the side as as, as quickly as it was kind of it was kind of a light. So we we have this problem where now it's brought it's brought the the fire back to these issues. So I would say that it is quite a revealing. Um, political documentary and it says a lot more than I think that you would think it does so I, to add a little bit more praise to it before I maybe I'm just slightly critical of aspects of it I think I think what it does extremely effectively and I think this is this is the so yes this was a big news story and as we said you, you know to varying degrees we were all aware of it at the time and and an and easy criticism would be well you know there's this was covered in the news it's not it's not adding new information but that's the thing it is and i think that's part of what is uh good about it and what i think any documentary that was covering this sort of topic would have to do and that's add context to the situation and i think it does that really pretty effectively and the two that the two that effectively come to mind to me are one, uh, the use of social media, in particular, its relation to the Arab Spring, right? Because I think it's very easy to get caught up in the horror of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, understandably, because it is it is horrific, right? But I think something that adds understanding and a certain more long-lasting horror to it are the motivations for it. And I think what this film does very effectively is it lays out 
what the motivations were of the Saudi state to remove Jamal Khashoggi. And it does that in two, two ways. The first is the use of social media, and in particular how that has transformed the landscape of how things are spoken about in politics, in particular countries that do not have the luxury of a, a free press. That's the first part of it, and you, you, you come to understand the impact that had on Jamal Khashoggi and his understanding. It talks about the... Um, it talks about the 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 uprising in Egypt and the overthrow of Mubarak and kind of how he was inspired by that. That's one part of it. The other part of it is the 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 reforms of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi and the way that he's kind of you know in some ways liberalising the country in the sense that you know there are um, further rights for for women from the extremely low bar they were starting with etc. But like there is this attempt to. There is this attempt to modernise the country, and I think what is it's getting across is, and I think it says explicitly in one of the intertitles, how modernisation doesn't always equate to to progress, right? And this is a key example of why. And I think what it does very well is it weaves all these strands together to not only get across what happened, which is horrible, but why it happened, which is abhorrent. Um, and I think that's an important context to add to the situation. I think that's what makes the documentary so effective. My criticism of it is I think it I think it dilutes some of its points by lingering on some of these things a little bit too long. In particular, there's quite a lot of animations around, um, you know, so, so one of the key things is this kind of this troll farm that has effectively been set up in Saudi Arabia to swarm... Um, critics of the regime on social media with negative negative uh, feedback and negative interaction engagement so that they are silenced and pushed to the bottom. And then the attempts of other people, in particular in the film, Omar Abdulaziz, to counter that with their own kind of like makeshift way of, um, you know, pushing them back to the top. And there's a lot of very overblown animations around that and the hacking of... You know, I think... I like, We're living in an age now where I don't think you need these sort of these weird cgi intertitles that are you know they look like something from like a 90s like music show or something i you don't need that to get across the idea of a phone being hacked right you know i, I think we're living in an age where you can understand the role of social media and some of them are fine like in terms of kind of like tweets flying out of the screen or something i think it gets across the volume and the nature of what was going on quite effectively but when you start getting into kind of like you know metaphorical animations around bees and flies and stuff that it, it doesn't need any of this and i think it maybe lingers in some of that a little bit too long and stretches it out and dilutes it a little bit it's a minor criticism ultimately because I think it still achieves what it wants to extremely effectively. But there are these little embellishments, which I remember from Icarus as well. But in Icarus, they were actually used to illustrate things. They were to do with kind of like the transport of how they got the the drugs around it. And I remember yeah, it was like the map of how it happened, or yeah, exactly. how like there was a hole in the wall or something like that. Yeah. But but the thing is that actually helped to serve illustrate what was going on i don't think here it does i think it's unnecessary embellishment and if anything just makes it look a bit silly to be honest but as i say it, it, the film still achieves what it wants to so i don't think it's a big criticism but i do think it's something which is transferred over from icarus which i don't think is deployed even nearly as effectively here it's sorry it's weird that you say that um bring up the the c the, the tacky kind of cgi illustrations because it 
Um, it reminded me a lot when I was watching it of, I don't know if anyone seen that, um, the social experiment, the, the documentary on Netflix talking about how, um, you know, uh, you're being controlled and monitored through your search history and things are programmed to take you down the, these passages within the web and things like that. But I think, I don't know where this trend sort of started with, that you have we have these CGIs talking about the digital world and the, and the, the real world as such. I don't think anyone's in any way confusing those two worlds. I don't think anyone believes, like, the more and more that we're learning about a technology and, you know, through all these shows, you know, Black Mirror-esque kind of avenues, I don't think anyone's questioning that anymore. I don't think there needs to be this separation between them between them both. I think that everyone's very aware that the, the, the internet is grossly, you know, misinformation and it's, it, things like that. So I, I think it possibly was trying to copy, like, kind of that you know, this this fake reality sense of it, but I don't think that it didn't really seem to kind of gel, and it, it didn't really seem to kind of gel with the, the format of the documentaries. It didn't really like I wasn't expecting there to be any kind of animations like that. It sort of just came out of nowhere, and it was a little bit overused. If I if you were to describe if you were to describe the notion of this documentary, I think if you then said there was an animation of a bee stabbing a fly through the head, you'd go like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> The bee stuff was was a little mad, yes, and I, I totally, as, as a metaphor, exactly. I, I think it's just, I mean, I don't know how many document, like, it, this is just a standard, as someone who worked in corporate video for 10 years, it's a standard <laughs> way of how you handle things that you don't know how to handle because you don't have the footage to do so. Um, so it's it really is outdated, and maybe it's not as outdated in high-end he was making a high-end documentary and he's coming from obviously like um an amateur you know sportsman who wants to make a documentary who found a great story who's now continuing on that's why i keep like like, uh, connecting him to morgan spurlock because morgan spurlock came out with this film that like became massively popular it's one of my least favorite films on the planet supersize me but but through that, he continually made films and they got worse and worse and worse. And we just realized, well, he just had a good, you know, he, he had this one hit. And I think that this is showing that Brian Fogel is actually doing something different and he's trying, or as you call him, a, like a whistleblower document filmmaker. He's exploring things. When he when he went to make one film, he he made another, but that, that turned him into this kind of work. And so watching him make a, a fairly astute film those things that we're talking about are aesthetics and I kind of remember even like in the Almelda of our film we last saw like there was an animation part that like annoyed me so it's animations mixed in with documentary is just super 2005 um, and maybe very like I don't know Mission Impossible or I'm messing it up but you know like some sort of kind of like way that films were made about 10 years ago as hackers this film gets a kick in for this but it's not as bad and i was gonna i was gonna bring up the social dilemma i think that's what it's called um because i watched like half of it over over christmas break because everyone's like oh i'm turning my facebook off i'm turning this off because i saw this film it's like revolutionary and i'm like what is this film like why it's so revolutionary what is it telling us and it 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 really is annoying like all those animations and there's some the guy from Mad Men is in there and he's like acting as the social media like no. algorithm i mean it's it's not that it's not news we don't know but it's i think this film actually does critically show 
like the issue of social media and it's like its role within society in a better way than that so netflix social dilemma film did not that i don't disagree like it, it made me it taught me a lot but this kind of like trying to explore this what's going on in the social con you know like social media and how do we visually show it doesn't need to be done in animations but it's a simple quick like kind of you know, cop out kind of the same way that like historical reenactments were done in regular, like, you know, in films from for years and years and years. Um, the only other thing I would say is that it's similar to like, I don't think this film is as good as something like Citizen Four, which that Edward Snowden film, but then in the same way, Icarus and Snowden have that kind of like luxury of being the documentary being the being the story, being part of the actual happening and so this is looking back two years ago or whenever and seeing something and then putting it together there's not this uh, there is new information maybe that's happened since two years ago and like you said Steph it's not something that uh you know we watched it for a few months like non-stop and then we just we moved on to something else because it's been a crazy terrible four years um you know so it's you know, we, 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 we forgot about it. And I think this is, it's a really nice record of an important thing that's still going on. I, I think that contextualization the film does is the important thing. Like, I mean, when it's laid, when all those strands are laid together like that, and then, you know, not that I want to keep coming back to, to, to Trump now that he's like mercifully <laughs> no longer in the, in the Oval Office, but yeah. um, not that I want to keep coming back to that, but it's like, if you focus just on the murder, like literally on the act of murder of Jamal Khashoggi, it becomes very easy to do what Trump attempted to do at one point, which is like, you know, dismiss them as rogue actors or something. But when you put all these things together, it yeah. is it really does build up a complete picture, which if anything, which as I say, puts a kind of a far more insidious horror over the the grisliness of the act itself. Um, and I think, you know, despite my issues with the animation and stuff, I think that's what this documentary does extremely well. Yeah, I just want to be clear and say that, you know, even though the animation won't get, I'm, I'm not going to compare it as to the the, the abhorrent amounts of the social dilemma and and like Jim said the actual <laughs> <laughs> the actual um, contextualization of the, the the documentary as a whole and the way that it kind of brings all these things to the forefront and shows you much more in depth into the the political world uh, in which this was allowed to happen I think that it's definitely one that one that needs to be watched especially even if, if you're especially if you're not familiar with um the case or even if it's you know even if you haven't re-explored it since since it broke out because I, I think that a lot of people have lost touch with a lot of um, news stories like you were saying Amanda with all the the mass of horrible news that's been coming for the last few years it's, it's, it's easy to lose touch with things that have happened even not that long ago so it's always good to refresh in these kind of documentaries yeah, and uh, the dissident will be out at Glasgow Film Festival, and then sh- um, shortly thereafter, hopefully online. I believe, uh, Jim, did you say it was March fifth? It was scheduled for March fifth. Um, whether it's still going to be scheduled for March fifth in the near future, we'll, we'll see. But it's definitely yeah, we'll going to be. See. Yeah, it's definitely going to be on Glasgow, Glasgow Film Festival, and Glasgow Film at Home from the sixth to the ninth. Okay, so the final film we're going to review this month is the new documentary by Gianfranco Rossi, 
Notorno. Uh, it premiered originally at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, it was also on the London Film Festival, but it is out um, streaming March 5th. So, uh, Steph, tell us a little bit about this film. It's basically a documentary that's exploring the aftermath of the war in the Middle East and people and, uh, and how people are, are surviving through that. It, it goes through lots of different stories from people um, struggling with poverty to people being very much still in very um, active war, um, actively violent um, places within there. You have people, you know, chatting to gunfire in the background and you it goes into, you know, talking about people's experiences with um, ISIS and the, the kind of the trauma that that's left with them. And... It's very much a very harrowing documentary of people that are mourning um, the loss of parts of their country and, and, and their loved ones and how um, they're having to rebuild um, their lives and homes and, and the place that's sort of long since changed from years ago. So um, I won't give too much more. I think the, the film itself is very much one that is quite organic and it flows through the, the characters' lives and stuff, so it's very difficult to summarise plot-wise, but it's very much guided through these people who still survive there um, to this day. I I like this a lot. Um, it is, it, it's quite interesting we're talking about it in this particular um, episode of the show, actually, because, I mean, it's a very, very different documentary to something like uh, The Dissident, and obviously it's it's... It's it's dealing with the same region. I mean, I don't think we I don't think we we deal with um, Saudi at any point here for obvious reasons because it's mainly areas that were affected by ISIS, right? So you're Iraq, Kurdistan, Syria, Lebanon, these places. Um, I like this a lot. I think it's it's. I don't want to say aggressively, but it's aggressively observational in the sense that it's very much, you know, the the cameras stuck down somewhere and then basically Rosie just lets the the scene whatever that may be play out in front of him um you know and I think it, it grabbed me from the very opening and I think it shows quite a lot of it shows quite a lot of craft even just in how he's captured that opening scene the opening scene is basically soldiers doing drills right they're basically running around and you know like they're they're doing a wee chant or something every every so often you know as they go around and you know get their their knees up and all the rest of it but the way it's captured is basically like one kind of like just kind of gets out of earshot and fades away before like bang another one comes in and that kind of care around how to capture the scene i think plays into all the other ones that uh, then subsequently go on you know whether it's um you know you have children recounting kind of some of the horrors that isis perpetrated you've got female fighters you've got just a couple on on a rooftop at one point um you know just taking the evening in and i think what i quite liked about it is it would be very easy i think to characterize this as you know, particularly because Rosie is Italian, right, and he's not from from the the region. He's an outside observer. It would be very easy to characterize this as, you know, the aestheticization of the trauma of the people in these regions. I don't think that's what he's doing here. I I I firmly believe that because I think it's very much an attempt to show that despite the trauma these regions have suffered, um, people's lives go on. 
and some of them are deeply, deeply affected by it, and everybody is affected by it, but there are also people who are getting on with their lives amidst this, and I think it captures all of that really pretty well. I like the fact that it doesn't... It doesn't expressly say where any of its um, vignettes are, or at least if it does, I can't really remember any of them, despite the fact that in terms of our understanding of the, the national borders here, it must go all around the place. Um, and really, it looks it looks incredible. I mean, I, I just I don't really understand even how some of these images are... Um, captured to be honest I, so i think this has got a lot going for it and i think that i try to avoid consuming too much um in terms of other reviews before i write or talk about a film i have seen a few criticisms of this film that say it's effectively trauma porn i i disagree with that quite strongly to be honest um and i think it, so it, it's very affecting um i think it looks incredible as well and i think the fact that it captures that within the context it does adds to what he's trying to achieve with the film and i was i was a big fan of it i think it was extremely effective see i um i you know i was really excited to see this because uh, of his previous film fire at sea mm -hmm. and not necessarily i don't know if you've both seen that film i have some strong love hate issues with that like i really like it really did um it was it was stunning uh, and i think go back to this idea that we're showing two films of two you know like two filmmakers who've done really quite well with their previous film and they're coming into this next film um and this film in particular that we're talking about right now um it makes me happy that we're uh you know in make uh, and that i'm making documentaries during this era because the fact that you can create shots like he has for this film with the technology that's out there. I mean, it's just incredible. The film is beautiful. I don't think there's a film we've seen in the last year that I've seen shots that I think are as beautiful as in uh, Noturno. Um, the, you know, when the, the prisoners are coming out in the red and just the way that he frames everything and the, the, um, the, the, the the wide shot of the 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 people in this um the psychiatric uh, hospital that are you know per performing the 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 play uh, it's it's gorgeous it's it's a gorgeous gorgeous film but with fire at sea i felt so far rem like i felt like there was these harrowing stories of of people coming into lampedusa and then the half of the, half of the film is about a guy a little boy like throwing rocks around and I just it, it felt it felt dismembered and it felt like two films and it didn't feel like it ever kind of came together and like I think what you mentioned about this idea Jim about hyper observational I, I do I'm torn and I think maybe I need to come back to this a couple months later and think about it because I just saw it a couple days ago but I love a Frederick Weissman film and I where's Mark when you need him um, you know, where, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting there for hours just watching things unfurl in like, you know, institutions and organizations and, you know, like, and stuff. Um, but when it's so powerful, it's not only so beautiful, but also the stories are so incredibly harrowing, as you say, Steph, it's, it's hard. It's hard to think about the fact that this is made, um, 
in a very like art house kind of festival circuit for the you know for the possibility of winning an oscar i you know like the those things still like i don't know it's just it kind of hits me a little bit and um i felt that a little bit with um you know, the story in Lampedusa with Fire at Sea, where then the next year there was a short film that was also nominated for an Oscar that was around Lesbos and kind of a similar story. And while it was not as artfully done, um, it was, you know, it it had more emotion or it had more character. It had a different kind of perspective to it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm i torn because there's aspects of this I absolutely love. And then there's other aspects of it that aren't, as obviously it's you know it's just it's a bunch of vignettes together it's it's a little bit not like you don't know who the where they are who who's who you're talking it's just observational but it doesn't kind of ever kind of explain any of that stuff so it's very far back um so uh, you know uh, uh, you know i'm mixed about it to be honest yeah, I, I, I can understand why. Um, to me, though, whenever we try and capture something like this on film, there is a certain, particularly when it's done in a certain way, that there is a certain amount of squeamishness about it. And to, to talk about something which, um, I don't remember if we did on the show, I'm not sure, I think we did way, way back when. Uh, I mean, one film where it came up was uh, Capernaum, uh, the one about the the kid, and I think, I'm, I'm forgetting where it was now, I think it was Lebanon. But. And that kind of like that was obviously a narrative film, but it 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 had some of the same criticisms. Um, and I can see where they come from, but it's more in some ways the fact that this is set where it is. I don't really see why things can't be presented that way. I would argue that in capturing something and making it look as beautiful as it does here. It's almost as it. I I just feel like whenever we talk about this, it's like there's there's this idea that when we are capturing places that have been through trauma, we cannot present them as being beautiful places. And I think the tragedy of, in particular, the likes of uh, Syria and Lebanon is, they are. I mean, the, the, these places have been scarred by these events, and I think the, the ability to present on film the people who have suffered the traumas of that region but still give a hint as to why these people would want to call it home and mm. why they have an, an, an affinity for it as any of us would i actually think that that does something interesting and powerful and i think and and to, to to me that's where the power of this film comes from it doesn't come purely from oh my god isn't this horrible what this region these people have been through it's also the idea that the people that are presented in the film have lives and they've been upended by it, and this is their home. It's not just somewhere where bad news happens, right? And I, I think this is this is where I struggle with some of these criticisms, but is because, you know, we, we need to be able to understand that people have lives that go on in these places, and I think this desire to not present that in a aesthetically pleasing way, yeah. Is in its own way to me. I think that's disingenuous because it implies that these places uh, they they are nothing but their trauma, and I don't think they are. 
is I suppose what I'm trying to drive at. No, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think what's most powerful to me is the quotidian of of the story. Like this is this is the life that goes on after war is hit, and but then it's it's the fact that that quotidian that every day is so so dramatically different and i think that's what come comes across so beautifully and and really well presented and again i think he is the film he think he's the camera person he's the sound person i don't know how he does it i would like to take a course with him directly like you know I, i mean it's just it's phenomenal filmmaking um it's i think though i think this actually to me is is better and it feels more um you know, earnest and, uh, you know, and sort of, um, empathetic than I did, than I actually felt the fire at sea did. Um, I, I've also, um, seen fire at sea as well. And I, I think that in the last, at least the last, um, half of last year and, um, the beginning of this year, there's been so many, I think it's been such a good run for documentaries. There've been so many interesting ones, and the way that we, the way that um people are approaching documentaries now are quite a lot different. You have this. I think um if you go back, you know, not even that many years ago, I think that documentaries were were quite, you know, taken and explored in, in quite similar ways. But now we have this kind of people want to take a more of a back seat when exploring these issues. I think that. I think that the problem is when you when you go into especially regarding that um Rossi's not from the Middle East he's 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 Italian and I think he he want when he's going into this film there's it's there's quite a small a blurred line between showing you know, documenting life on camera and showing these places in the aftermath of war and during war um to show how life is progressing and how life continues to people. And then I think that there's not a long way to go from there until it can become quite exploitative and quite sensationalist about these countries. And what, um, because I think, especially in many places, we're so far removed from anything near that life that I think we're always wanting to, to know more about something that I don't think that, I think Rossi kind of acknowledges that we don't, I don't think that we could ever fundamentally really understand that way of life. I think it's something that he takes the he takes the things in these regions that are just universal to everyone. You know, you have shots of like beautiful shots of a couple um on a roof with like a, a shisha pipe, and then the only difference between you know their life and 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 a lot of places is that you know we don't have gunfire in the background. But they got on with it, as I suppose Jim was saying. Um, with Fire at Sea as well, it was. <laughs> I do understand um, what Amanda means about two different stories within the one and the, the collision. I think that, um, to me, it didn't really bother me that it was shot like that. But I can see why that would be quite. That would become quite distancing for people when you're talking about European like migrant migration into. Um, into Italy and things like that so you and I think that again it's that that thing where how far can you show the lives of these struggling people without using them to you to your advantage to 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 sell a story into your documentary there was a few um I remember uh 
think I wrote a piece for take one about um, a documentary called Pure Kids, and it was all it was in America, and it was talking about homeless um, homeless LGBTQ youth that were um, um, struggling on the outskirts, and it was one of those things where it let people tell their own stories. It wasn't guiding into this way of this narrative of America, of what it's saying about these regions. And I think that's pretty much what um, Rossi does here. I think that he he wants to he wants to be quite an organic filmmaker, and I think that that can be confusing when you see how aesthetic, aesthetically quite beautiful all these shots are, and how much there are kind of a lot of art house undertones to the way that he he shoots these regions and, and the way that he he sort of lays the camera down to be quite static and explores all these um really beautiful parts of the land but i i think that i think that it's more the sense that i don't know if he particularly knows how to tell a story like that and i don't think that he necessarily really needs to i don't think that um looking at the lives of people in in those situations can really be summarised in about an hour, an hour and just over two hours as such. So I, it is one of those yeah. documentaries I think that will stay with me. Absolutely, and I fire at sea stayed with me, and I there's not there's not for me to say that I don't like the film. It's just that it, it raises questions, and I, I think when we 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 did Il Mio Corpo a couple months ago, and it has that similar kind of. Um, you know, crafted sense, although I mean, it was much more of a hybrid than this is. But there's there are lots of things of this that are planted in front of the shot. The shots are created, you know, like people are standing in front of this and you know he's kind of directing them to a certain extent to get the right shot. So it's it's kind of this, I mean, I don't know if it's just Italian, but it seems to be a very similar sort of Italian tradition of how documentaries are are made in this new way and kind of a, a, very, a new way that's very, very different than the dissident, which is, you know, so American with its like animations and, and, you know, and whatnot. So they're not, there's, they're both different and they're both, they're both actually like equally relevant and, in, 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 um, and teaching us about, you know, about the world. So I, I, I'm not completely criticizing it, though I do see where that controversy or that concern is, especially because who's watching it and what what's the audience? And the audience is the Berlin Alley, you know? It's the it's this international kind of art house. That's what it's made for. And so it, it's just um it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting question that is out there now, now that it's been made. But it's no there's no question that the that, that it's quite beautiful and the people are you know i mean the stories are you know are harrowing and and and, and so sad um so we highly recommend that you watch the film um and uh so check check it out uh when when it comes out online So I had the opportunity to talk to Alex Camilleri, the director of Lutsu, which was one of the uh, films I saw at Sundance Film Festival, probably my favourite of the festival. So keep an eye out for that whenever it pops up um, elsewhere on the festival circuit. It was filmed in Malta, and it follows a Maltese fisherman and his attempts to kind of maintain his way of life in the face of uh, modernisation and personal troubles and various other things. Uh, Alex himself is a Maltese-American. He filmed it in Malta 
with non-professional actors, and I think it's an extremely, extremely good, extremely effective film. Uh, I was very pleased to get the chance to talk to him, and we'll go into the interview now, and I started off by asking him about the locations in Malta and why he chose the places he did, because it's very striking, some of the visual contrasts that he comes up with. So, first of all, thank you for the film. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's stayed with me for quite a long time after uh, watching it. Um I wanted to ask you to start off with about the location. Um, now, obviously, like Malta is obviously very, very close to your heart, but I was thinking on a more specific level because one of the things that stood out to me was the way that you kind of contrast the very um, small scale in terms of the world, but obviously the stakes are very high. Um, trials that Jesmart goes through with some of the stuff around him, um, like contrasting Lutsu with, you know, he's having a conversation with uh, conversation with his wife with that kind of like the container ship looming in the background uh, and that sort of thing. And I, there were lots of little moments like that stood out to me, and a lot of it came down to the location stuff. So I was wondering how how did you how did you come up with the locations in Malta that you wanted to to film at? I love locations; it's my favorite part of the whole process. And they were so intrinsic to this project because I wasn't just writing a sort of black box drama. Um, I always knew that just as I was articulating things very specifically through the, the characters, I would also be trying to do that um, visually uh, through the world. You know, that's the kind of the, the primary tool that we were working with. Um, and because we were shooting on a, a micro budget, essentially all on location, um, the, the physical environments become all that more important. Um, the Maltese sun in October is brilliant. And so you basically don't have to change your f-stop for about 12 hours. And that opens you up to being able to point the camera anywhere. And you just can make something really good out of it, you know, quite, um, quite readily. Uh, so, you know, the, I had very specific, some very specific locations in mind while writing. So uh, that shot that you highlighted about the, the container ships while they're having that conversation, um, for instance, that was just baked into the, the script from the get-go. And uh, these are just places that I know, but that are also just familiar to anyone who is um, accustomed to Malta. Uh, and where my perhaps you know job, my role comes in is to, take those locations that everyone sees every day and just give them meaning, put them into a context to elicit the emotions. And, you know, that's the, the director's job, like a chef, you know, combine these, uh, these ingredients in the right order and the right combination at the right intensity. And you can elicit something uh, that goes beyond the everyday. And, you know these these locations, as I mentioned before, they're 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 so commonplace, and, and everyone knows them. And and often, what I find in Malta is that um, people look away from them. You you sort of close your eyes, not literally, but you you would ignore them in some sense just to get through your day. They're not the most picturesque parts of the island. Um, uh, and I always feel like. I, I perhaps bring a, a freshness of view because I'm both an insider and an outsider to Malta, that these things haven't yet 
lost their impact on me as they might if I was fully every day. Hmm. thinking of them every day and running into them every day. And I just, I would have to put them out of my mind, just like I do here in New York City. You know, there's probably an amazing street that I ignore because I have to walk through it and the pavement is cracked or whatever, and I don't like it. Um, but there can be, it's a, there can be a specific kind of beauty in it. And in the right hands, of course, that, that beauty can come out. Talking about things that were baked into the, the, the script, I was wondering, how did you decide when to insert these little mo- nods and moments to things, you know, because there's a, dis- there's a discussion with, um, you know, the fish market boss about environmental concerns and it, it, it you know, it's, it's there very briefly and briefly, but it kind of informs a lot of things that happen in the interaction with that character, but things like um, the cost of healthcare, um, the precariousness of, uh, migrants, you know, because you've got Uday on the boat and things like that. How did you decide when to put them in the script? Because they're all, they all kind of get their own moment. Uh, none of them are lost, but they're all they are all there. There's quite a lot of ground covered. So I'm really just wondering how you how you decided to pace and measure that out in the script. I knew from the beginning that there were there were things that I wanted to say, but all of the things that I want to say have to be sublimated to the drama, and. I'm interested in the world and I want to have my eyes open. I don't want to make a nostalgic film. Uh, this is not about some romantic idea of what the life of fishermen is like. Um, and to get all those things in, it, it's tricky uh, because you don't want to make an issue film and you don't want to feel like you're preaching and everyone gets turned off by those things. And I certainly do. So I, I think that the the best way to go about it is just, you know, make sure you're telling everything through uh, a strong perspective. And this film is focused like a laser on Jesmark. He's in every scene but one in the film. And as long as I think information is being parceled to the character in a believable way at the right time in his journey, then, uh, then I think the audience accepts it. And, you know, I think you just have a little bit of patience and trust in the audience that, okay, even if you're not... You don't need to begin with a topic sentence and then underneath it, give all your, your points. Sometimes, you know, you're just giving a little bit of a hint and then we don't get to that stuff about climate change really until maybe three quarters of the way through the film. And you have faith in the audience that they'll, they're, they're smart enough that they don't need to be kind of told what's, what are these forces that are lurking in the background and putting, you know, all these pressures on Jesmark. And, um, you know, if you have that faith, you'll, you know, the audience will reward you. Um, the conventional knowledge, of course, is that you're not smarter than the audience. The audience is smarter than you. And I, I find that to be true. And uh, I'm kind of surprised about how much we actually we get, we get into the film. Um, maybe it's too much. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, we get into climate change. We get into EU regulation. We yeah. get into migration. We get into racism. We get into politics a little bit, um, you know. But that's also, I think, it matches the film. That's the, the project of the film, and it's in a, a genre in a, in a way that, uh, you know, the audience is going to accept it if they, they like this kind of film, and it's part and parcel in the style. So I, I, I think we can do it. One thing I want to ask you about, just because I just when I was looking up who, who worked on the film, it was just an interesting link to me now maybe it's because i'm british but i mean it, it reminded me quite strongly of ken loach's work 
Um, oh. And of course, then of course, once you once I go digging, I see that you end, you were working with uh, Leo Lefebvre, who of course has worked with uh, Loach. I was just wondering how did how did that link come about? How did you end up uh, working with him and? In particular, to form the way the film looks, because of course it informs, you know, kind of the whole tone and mood of the piece. Um, and there's quite a lot of it, like even though, like as you said, that you know the the Maltese sun, you probably had a lot of daylight hours. It was a very varied look. So I was just wondering how you ended up working with him and mm. um, what work you did to come up with the look of the film, really. Well, I'm um, as Ken Loach obsessive, um, and I think certainly. Uh, he and, and of course the, the films of Paul Laverty are a big influence on this. I, I can't deny that. Um, but I was delighted, you know, when I met Leo, that wasn't the first thing that I knew about him, but it was an unexpected treat because he was part of the camera crew on three of the recent Loach films. And um, some, somehow that, that language spoke to me. I wasn't sure that was the exact cinematic language for this film. Um, I was thinking about Loach a lot, you know, kind of in the writing more so than in the directing and the mise-en-scene and the, and the cinematography. But it was great to, to speak to Leo just to know um, the ethos, for instance, on those sets, you know, what is a day like on a Ken Loach set? I just loved hearing about that. But even, you know, we could look at scenes specifically if we did want to reference them. And he was an amazing resource because there was, uh, you know, I could just ask like, okay, what lens are they on? here and, and where where was the camera and where was the crew tucked away and he just had all the memories of, of how they actually did it so that was awesome um but you know leo had uh, a lot else to bring to the table and had a strong documentary background too and he had recently worked on a film in algeria that was also a very small budget film small budget film with a lot of heart and kind of in a difficult sort of unconventional uh cinema uh, environment right uh, so those combinations uh, made him the, the, the perfect guy for the job. We developed a style, you know, first kind of theoretically talking about things that we liked and we loved so many of the same films beyond just the Loach films. And so it was very easy to get started. And I think we thought that we might try to shoot a bit more on the tripod like, um, like Ken Loach does. But it's important that you have your eyes open once you get on set. And we realized the way that Jesmark moved somehow, that the, the tripod wasn't doing him as many favors and that he kind of had a different energy and we needed the, to go on the shoulder a little bit more. So we ended up you know, combining more handheld with tripod and uh, Leo is very adaptable and he's, very, he's a very skilled operator and can kind of do everything. So uh, that was a, a wonderful moment for me just as a, as a first time filmmaker to be like, okay, it's cool to come in with plans and to be very intentional, but you know, you got to wake up and be like, oh, you know, if this plan doesn't work, let's, let's change and let's be, let's be alive to, to what's being fed to us here on set. On the, the technical elements. And so this is your, your first um, feature directing, but you got a lot of editing experience. Did yeah. that, do you feel like, do you feel like that changed the way you shot things or were there specific things that maybe, your editing experience informed what you were doing on set or even or even during the writing process potentially i hope so i mean to speak about set first um yeah i mean you i i think the the conventional kind of 
wisdom about sort of shooting for the edit is is valuable. Um, in some ways, you know, at times you do have to let out, you know, you have to kind of let the slack out a little bit. You know, you don't want to shoot too tightly. You want to, um, well, I guess it goes both ways. You were talking about the edit. In one sense, my, people might say, shoot for the edit, meaning just get the coverage that you need. And in that way, uh, I think I had a strong sensibility of like, you know, what are the shots that we need to, to cover? Like, I think I used like every setup we ever shot in this film. Like there are no extraneous setups. Like that didn't really ever happen. But, you know, I also had a, a background in, in documentary and that informed different sense of shooting for the edit, which is sometimes you just got to shoot stuff out, you know, and what you're trying to do is you need to get a lot of lumber and you're going to go home and you're going to build a little house for yourself. But, you know, if you don't get that lumber, you can't build the house. And, you know, sometimes you just needed to let it roll. I'm thinking about, for instance, a scene where there's a group of old fishermen and they're all chewing the fat, talking about stories and griping. And I mean, it was really just like a documentary shoot. And, you know, we just did various passes and put the camera in different places. So um, I, I guess that is similarly informed by editing and knowing when to switch the gear about this is the type of material we need here. And then in this other place, okay, we don't need to do that, but let's let's be smart about what the coverage is. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to the background in editing. I, I think it's tremendous training for filmmakers and it's a bit surprising uh, and people have picked up on it, to be honest, um, that I did make a transition from editing to directing, I think because it's unusual. And I'm not sure why it's so unusual because editors are really, you know, tremendous storytellers. They just get to the, the heart of like, what are, what are the shots you need to tell the story? And that, that is valuable in, in directing. One thing I want to ask you about, and you know, I, I, I've been asking a lot of filmmakers this, <laughs> who I've been interviewing in the past, you know, year now, basically. Um, what are your hopes for the film during this period? Because you've kind of, you've, in particular, you've you've premiered at Sundance during this particularly strange period when it's basically all happening remotely. Um, you know, we're talking we're talking about a film that screened at a Utah film festival and I'm sitting in the UK and you're sitting in New York and we're from you know to a certain extent we're pretending that this is all normal but I'm used to seeing things at a film festival where often the filmmaker will be standing at the back of the room kind of like keenly studying everybody's reactions because it's the first kind of like big audience that has seen the film and obviously you haven't really had a chance to do that um are you hoping to try and get that at some point or, and, and, and what are your hopes for the film off the back of that in terms of like play, is it playing at more festivals? Is it um, going to, do you just want people to see it any way that's possible or, you know, a little of all of the above? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, by this point in the pandemic, um, I have a certain humility about these things that, um, we can't project too far into the future. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that at some point this year, things are gonna get better. And um, I hope that that coincides. I hope that coincides with uh, physical screenings. I'm dying for it. Not only have I not seen this film in a room with 300 people or a thousand people, I haven't seen this film in a room with one or two other people, right? Yeah. Um, that's crazy. And for a, 
uh, a young filmmaker such as myself, you know, you do miss an opportunity to do what you were hinting at, which was study the collective body language of the audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, um, you know, too, it's too late for this film, but it helps you in the next film. You know, you learn where the laughs are and where, uh, where are people getting restless? Like, that really informs your, your sense of rhythm and, and how these things play in a room. And, you know, sometimes the jokes can't be, not that there are many jokes in this film, but for instance, jokes can't be too close to each other. If people laugh, they miss the next one. And those are the things you can only get a sense about with, with seeing a live audience. And I, I just think that that experience is still really valuable for us. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to be working with a tremendous um, sales team and we are kind of charting out the rest of the year for festivals. We're hoping to just go on the road with it, so to speak, the virtual road. And at some point that'll give way to, um, you know, physical screenings. And I hope that I can pop up at one of these festivals and most importantly with my cast, because they're, um, they do such tremendous work in this film. And I think it's really important for people to understand uh, that these are real fishermen. It, with all the messaging that we've done about this film, it's still amazing to me that I'll read reviews that say, oh my God, I had no idea that they were actually real fishermen until I saw the credits or I saw the Q&A. And I think that's a credit to the work that they do in the film because there are like good non-actor performances. And I think we've, we all kind of know what those are. And then there's what, you know, just Mark and David do yeah. in this film, just amazing performances and mm. no one would be any, you know, they're none the wiser that these are, these guys had never been on camera before this film. It's tremendous. To, to finish off with, I suppose, I'm keen to see what, with this the experience of making this film, do you have an idea of what you'll work on next? And if so, are you looking to do something with the same sort of approach um, where it's all very, you know, it's very grounded maybe in the community it's representing and you'll work with uh, folk who have not acted before or maybe haven't acted a lot before. Is that an approach you're, you'll look to carry forward or did you feel that was just what fitted this particular story? Well, I mean, I really enjoyed working in this way and I'm developing my next film uh, right now. It brings me back to Malta and it is actually using, again, some similar techniques, um, but charting in a different direction. So I'm going to work again with non-actors and mixing in also some trained actors set in a very specific side of Malta that most people don't know about, uh, but in a completely different emotional register, different tone different kinds of characters, and I think it's really going to surprise people. All right. Well, fantastic. I look forward to seeing it, hopefully in person. <laughs> I, I hope so, too. I think it would be actually a very, good, um, a very good film to see with a big group of people. It has that kind of energy. So, hello everyone. Uh, this is Betty Stoinic coming to you not live, but pre recorded from Croatia. So, Cinetopia is well and truly displaced and delocalized. Um, I have recently had the privilege to cover International Film Festival Rotterdam and would like to talk to you about it here and share some experiences and talk about some of the films that left an impression on me. IFFR, of course, is highly regarded in Europe as a festival that provides a space for really innovative cinema, often by new or relatively unknown talent, and this is particularly true of its trademark Tiger competition, 
which is the main selection that I will be covering today. Uh, this year's edition of IFFR was the festival's 50-year jubilee, which was unfortunately limited to online screenings and events for the time being. Fret not, though, because the festival will be back uh, early June this year with physical events and a special anniversary program. Another interesting thing about this year's edition of IFFR is that it's the first under its new festival director, uh, Vanya Kolodzicic, who clearly had a lot of work ahead of her given the new online format. Still, I really enjoyed the festival myself, and I'm really happy to have been able to watch so many of the films. Um, one of the perks of doing this online is that you can kind of just sit at home and stack like four films to watch one after the other before you even had dinner, so... I actually got to watch more stuff than I expected. Like I said, what I'd really like to focus on is the Tiger competition, which is dedicated to up-and-coming international filmmakers for whom this may even be their first ever foray into feature-length film. The competition was founded in 1995, and this year's edition of it included 16 films, with the jury consisting of Lemoang Jeremiah Mosese, uh, Orvan Narabia, Hala Elkushi, Helena Vandermullen, and Ilse Huhan. They were to decide which film receives the 40,000 euro grand prize and the two special jury awards at 10,000 euros each. One of the two special jury awards went to Ikomet, A Corsican Summer by Pascal Tagnati. I would primarily describe Ikomet as a slice of life film, which depicts life on Corsica through a series of vignettes, each of which is dedicated to the characterization of the people living on the island and their relationships and families. I personally enjoyed Ikomet, but because of its episodic nature, I did feel like some of the storylines and character arcs were more interesting than others. The second winner of the Special Jury Award was uh, Looking for Venera by Norika Sefa, which is a coming-of-age story set against the backdrop of a small Kosovo town. Venera, the protagonist, is a teenage girl living in a multi-generational household with her restrictive and domineering parents. As she begins to explore teenagehood, Venera needs to learn how to be both independent from her parents and from the expectations of her own peers. I quite liked Looking for Venera. I think it was a rather conventional coming-of-age film, but I do think the setting gives it a very unique context of living in a community that is experiencing a gradual generational shift in terms of its traditions and values. Finally, the winner of the main Tiger Award uh, was Pebbles by Indian director Vinothraj P.S. Pebbles follows a young boy as he wanders with his alcoholic father between villages in the hot, desolate outskirts in southern India. The relationship between father and son is kept tacit, the whole film is quite minimalist in its approach, and they embark on this short journey in a vividly hot and dry environment. I think it's precisely the environment of this film that likely got it the award, as it's quite unique but also portrayed in a really visually masterful way, where the viewer is simultaneously aware of every crack in the ground but also the totality of the image as this great big stretch of dry land and rock. Aside from the award winners, there are some other highlights that I'd like to mention. Uh, one of them is Chinese director Queen Elise Bipolar, 
which is a road movie about a young girl who rescues a presumed holy lobster from its display tank in a Tibetan hotel. Bipolar is the filmmaker's first feature film, and while it's pretty typical in its story beats and tone for a road movie, I honestly think it's a remarkable achievement for a debut film. The cinematography is excellent, and I really appreciated the emotional sincerity of it. I also wanted to briefly mention uh, Marta Popivoda's Landscapes of Resistance, a documentary in the form of an extended interview with Sonia, who was one of the Yugoslav partisan movement's first female fighters and an Auschwitz survivor. I'm obviously from the former Yugoslavia as well, so this was a really moving and insightful look into what I consider the area's joint history and a really inspiring film for contemporary anti-fascists. Overall, I think the selection was really interesting, mainly because it was so focused on the places and communities from which these films come. I think it really made IFFR live up to the international in its name. Uh, keep in mind, these are films that are often feature-length debuts and will have their imperfections, but I think it's a fantastic way to find out which filmmakers to keep an eye on in the future. So, those were my thoughts and recommendations for this year's IFFR. I hope all of our listeners are staying safe out there. Um, if you'd like to read more about IFFR or find more information about the films, make sure to check out Cinetopia's blog on the topic. Once again, hello from Croatia, and now we can return to our regularly scheduled Cinetopia programming. So that wraps up our um, show for this month, um, but uh, never fear, we're back in, in, a, in a week or so. Um, we're, as as per usual, I think this is the third year in the running, I'm not sure if second or third, um, we are doing a Glasgow uh, Film Festival special. So uh, a few of the films, as as you know, are, are going to be part of the Glasgow Film Festival, but also shortly coming out that we reviewed this week. But we're going to do a dedicated um, special uh, right at the beginning of the film festival, which is coming, uh, the starts the twenty fourth, I believe, and I'll just let uh, Jim give a little bit more. Um, but we're we're also going to be doing interviews with directors and whatnot. So so look out for that. And uh, Jim, tell us a little bit about what you th- what what we're going to be work- reviewing and whatnot. Yeah, so we know a couple of the films we're talking about, but generally there are so many films we don't even know what we're going to be covering yet. Um, I, I think one thing we're definitely going to talk about is uh, Minari, which has had a lot of uh, good press. Uh, we'll be talking about that. That's that debuted at the Sundance Film Festival last year, uh, 20, 2020, before the, the before times. <laughs> um, so we'll be talking about that because that's going to be opening Glasgow Film Festival. Um, there's also a film I saw at Toronto, Apples, a Greek film, which is going to be screened at the festival. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, I think, like, keep an eye out on our social media to see what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, there's lots of candidates. There's uh, Limbo, Ben Chirac's new film, Scotch Filmmaker. Uh, there's Black Bear, another one from Sundance last year. Uh, City Hall, new Frederick Wiseman documentary. Some, some or all of these we may end up talking about, but basically we'll be trying to pick out some stuff from the Glasgow program, talk about it, and hopefully we'll be doing some interviews with folk as well, where we can uh, get into the weeds on some of these things. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do a dedicated show for the Glasgow Film Festival. Uh, a week from when this one goes out so we're going to publish it on the 23rd which is the day before the film festival starts great so you'll be hearing from us soon um so that's it for this one but uh 
see you in a week.